Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the opportunity we have to come together as your people. We thank you for the provision of a safe place like Lakeside. Lord, we think about the Jewish community, the synagogue that was attacked yesterday, people that were gathering to worship, and it was imperfect worship and it was old covenant worship, but nonetheless, people were attacked while they gathered together in a place they thought was safe. Lord, we don't take for granted that you protect us week after week. And we do pray for safety for all those who gather together to worship because there are satanically, demonically inspired people who want to harm anything associated with your name. So I pray for safety for us today. I thank you for the safety you provide for us. And we pray for the police officer that we have on site that he would be able to do his job and protect all who are here. And Lord, we pray for today that you would work in our hearts that you would help us to focus on you, that we could set aside all the distractions that bombard our minds, that take us away from being able to focus. And Lord, help us to be able to worship you today in spirit and in truth. I pray for the teaching in Sunday school from our brother Mike, that it would be powerful and effective. And I pray for the teaching this morning from Pastor Steve, that it would also impact our hearts and lives. And and with all the teaching that we hear, Lord, I pray that we would be doers of the word and not merely hearers only. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Mike, you can come teach. Thank you. Good morning. The last time I had the opportunity to teach here in Pastor Joe's class was back in the summer. Over four or five lessons we studied the somewhat obscure book of Haggai. For me, that was a really good study, one that I learned a lot from because it's not a book that I study very often. Well, this morning we're going to take kind of the opposite approach and we're going to look at a text in the New Testament that everyone is probably very familiar with. So be turning to the Gospel of John chapter 6. We're going to be looking at the first 15 verses of John chapter 6. As you're turning there, though, I'm going to ask you a question. Do you think about Jesus when you're eating a piece of freshly baked bread? You should. Do you know that God made bread so that it would remind you of Jesus? Besides being food for our nourishment, He meant for it to be an illustration of being satisfied in Jesus Christ who is what? The bread, the bread of life. Same thing applies to water. Water is necessary for the existence of our physical life and it's an illustration of our need for the Savior who is our living water. Same can be said for light. When we stare into the light of the sun, which I did yesterday, it's so bright that you have to turn away. That should remind us of Jesus Christ who is the light of the world. Nothing exists, Colossians 1.16 says, for itself. It says everything was created through Him and for Him. Every pleasure that we enjoy in this created world is designed by God to give us a glimpse of heaven and a hunger for Jesus Christ. So this morning, we're going to look at the first 15 verses of chapter 6 of the Gospel of John where Jesus is going to do a miracle and He's going to do a miracle with common bread. Bread they ate every day. That's the story recounted in the first 15 verses of John chapter 6. And the verses following 
the ones we're going to read about, verses 16 through 71, it's a much larger portion of Scripture, and that's going to show that it isn't really about bread at all, but it's about Him. He's going to make a very pointed comparison of Himself to this bread. And He's going to do it in such strong and almost offensive language that many people will leave Him and no longer following Him. So just to get a glimpse of what follows the verses we're going to look at, I want to look at a few verses in the section that follows the first 15. Look at verse 32 of chapter 6. In verse 32, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread. And in verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. Look on down in verse 47 of chapter 6. Jesus again speaking, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. And then he goes on to talk about the manna in the wilderness. Look at verse 58. Verse 58, Jesus says, This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. This whole section is about Jesus being the bread of life. And we're not going to get into that today. But some of the things he says here are very hard sayings. In fact, some of the disciples recognize it. Look at what verse 60 says. Verse 60 says, when many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And then in verse 66, tells us that many of his disciples, because of what he said, turned back and no longer walked with him. And maybe at a later date, we'll look at that in detail. But what I want to do this morning is to focus on the section that sets up this discussion, namely the miracle, subtitled in my Bible, The Feeding of the Five Thousand. Now, when I say that, we all immediately know what it's going to be about. It's a miraculous event where Jesus fed thousands of people from five loaves of bread and a couple of fish. But I hope this morning, as we dig into this passage, that we'll see more than just the miracle. As we begin, though, I think it's important to remind ourselves of the purpose of Jesus' miracles. Why did he do them? If you study the miracles of Jesus, you'll find another word that's used for the word miracle is the word sign. They were signs. Miracles were a sign. Back in John chapter 2, when Jesus performed his first miracle of turning the water into wine, John called it a sign and he said it displayed his glory. And the disciples believed because of it. That was the reason for Jesus' miracles, to substantiate his claims of deity. I think it's also important to note the nature of his miracles. If you scan back over the chapters that precede this one, you'll see that this miracle, the turning of the water into wine, was the first one. But you'll see he goes on and he heals the nobleman's son. He heals the man at the pool of Bethesda and probably lots of more miracles that we're not even aware of. And he's becoming very well known because of these miracles. And as I was thinking about this, I thought about the nature of them. You know, were they spectacles? Did he suspend the temple in the air and move it around? He could have. Did he fly through the air like Superman? No. 
He could have done anything he wanted to do to get their attention miraculously. But what's the nature of his miracles? They were things that where he met needs, where he showed compassion. He chose, as he proved his divinity, he also met the needs of the people. So today we come to what is called a creative miracle. In this miracle, Jesus shows his creative power probably more than any other miracle. It also affects more people than any other miracle thus far. We're told in Matthew that there were 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. So counting the women and children, there were thousands more. This miracle is recorded in all four Gospels, which tells me it was a significant event. For the purpose of our study this morning, I want to break it down into four sections. We're going to look at the curious crowd, verses 1 through 4. We're going to look at the disciples' faltering faith in verses 5 through 9. The miraculous meal in verses 10 through 13. And then we'll end by seeing the wrong reaction in verses 14 through 15. So let's read about the curious crowd, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 6. Follow along as I read in John chapter 6. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd... Actually, we'll stop there at, the, at verse 4. Now, as the scene begins with Jesus leaving the western side of the Sea of Galilee and going over to the other side of the lake. That's how we break into this setting. Verse 2 says, A large crowd was following him. So I want you to paint a picture in your mind of what the crowd following Jesus looked like. And we know that there were many, thousands of people there. And why were they following him? Were they really interested in his teaching and who he was? No, we know they were following him. It tells us that they were following him because of the signs that he was doing. It was about the miracles. It was about the healings. They had a very curious nature and the word spread and people flocked to him from all around the surrounding cities to see and to see him heal people and to see the miracles. That's what they were following for. And I think I got a really much better picture of this. Many of you have been to Israel. When I was in Israel and was on the Sea of Galilee and saw some of the areas that this may have taken place in, and you can just picture this football stadium size of people traveling on foot around the sea and gathering around Jesus. You can kind of get a picture in your eyes of what it was like. The first question I asked myself as I began the study was from the first sentence. Why did Jesus go to the other side of the lake? Well, you have to read all of the accounts to get all the details. So turn back to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew gives us some details that John doesn't. Matthew chapter 14, verse 13, begins by saying, now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place. Now, when you read that, it says, when he heard this. So, you can summarize that he left because of whatever he heard. What did he hear? If you look at the preceding verses before this, you'll see that it's a, an account of John the Baptist being murdered. 
And if you look back at verse 12, the preceding verse, it says, And his disciples came and took the body, talking about the body of John, and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. So the disciples who had helped bury John the Baptist, they came and they told Jesus everything that had gone on. And then it says, When Jesus heard this, he went to the other side of the lake. So one of the reasons Jesus took the disciples and left for the other side of the lake was because of the news of John the Baptist's death. I said one of the reasons because in Mark's account, we won't take the time to turn over there, but he too tells of John's death and he opens in verse 30 of Mark 6 by saying that the apostles returned to Jesus, told him all they had done and taught, and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. So we see that he was in need of rest. The disciples were in need of rest. And he said, let's get away. And you've been through stress and we've been busy and let's get away for rest. And the mountains was Jesus' place of rest. It was a refuge for him. We're told many times in Scripture how Jesus went up into the mountains to pray or to get away. By the way, we need that sometimes, don't we? We need to be able to get away and to rest, to commune with God at a slower place. Now, I don't want to mis you misunderstand me that we all don't have to go to North Carolina and buy a cabin in the mountains. You don't have to do that. I know some of you do, and it's nice, but you can have a bench in the park. You can have a place in your backyard, on your deck. You can have an early morning walk or a beach that you go to or just a room in your house that's quiet. Jesus didn't even have a room to go to. He had nowhere to go. That's where he, he went was the mountains. Verse 4 tells us the Passover was at hand. That might explain why there were so many people around. Then verse 5 tells us that the crowd followed him. Here's another question. Did Jesus send the crowd away? No, he didn't. What does that tell us today? Does Jesus... He, he rarely sent anybody away from him that came to him. He was probably tired. We know the disciples were tired. It says they needed some rest. They weren't going to get it, though. But he didn't turn them away. He's always available. Jesus is always available. He's never too tired to hear our prayers, to hear our concerns, to teach us, to instruct us. So we get a glimpse of what the scene was like with this huge crowd following Jesus to the other side of the lake. Now let's read verses 5 through 9, and we'll see the growing but the still faltering faith of the disciples. Beginning in verse 5, it says, Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Turn back to Mark chapter 6. I want to read that account too. Like I said, it takes all of the accounts to really get a good feeling of all the details of what went on. Mark chapter 6, talking about the same thing, beginning in verse 34, and I'll read down through verse 38. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and village and buy themselves something to eat. 
But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. I'll stop there. So we learn through these two accounts that Jesus, even though he was tired, had brought the disciples here. He had brought them here to get some rest. He spent hours with the people, healing them, teaching them. And it was getting late. They were far from town. And they didn't have anywhere to get food. So Mark says the disciples come to him. And they actually said, let's send the crowd away. So they could all go get something to eat on their own. And Jesus said, no, you feed them. John says that he specifically spoke to Philip. Why Philip? We don't know. But I think he's directing the question at all of them, the group. But Philip was the one he named. Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat was Philip's response. By the way, when Jesus asked him that, do you think Jesus was expecting an answer? He knew. He knew there was no way. So why did he ask him? What did verse 6 say in John? Test him. So we should stop here and ask the question, does God test us? We all know he does. How does he test us? Why does he test us? I immediately thought of James 1, verses 1 through 3. You're all probably aware of it. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect work so that you may be complete and lacking nothing. So how does God test us? He tests us in all kinds of various ways, James says. Now, if you do a word search, you could get a little confused by this because sometimes the word is translated tested, sometimes it's translated tempted. Does God tempt us? No. Later on in James, verse 13, it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God is not tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. So what's the difference? Who tempts? Satan tempts because that's an inducement to do evil. God never tests us or tempts us in a way that would induce us to do evil. Testing is more to try or to prove. And we know by James that it's done for a purpose, to grow our faith. That's a big difference. God never entices us to do evil. So this is not a temptation presented to Philip, but a test. There are different kinds of tests. Sometimes God tests people to to shine light on their faith to find out whether or not they're even truly saved. I can think of examples where I've seen God allow really hard times to come into people's lives. And what happens when really hard times... When you think about someone who loses a child or goes through something that's really, really, really hard, it usually does one of two things. It either draws you nearer to God or away from God. Because sometimes they turn in anger and they run from God. That's a test to show whether or not you're really saved or not. That's one type of test. Other times, as James 1 says, it's done for the purpose of strengthening one's faith. It may expose a weak faith, but it's meant to help them grow. And that's what we have here with Philip. What was Philip's response? Did he pass the test with flying colors? Not exactly. It didn't really expose a strong, unwavering faith in Jesus and who he was. Rather, it exposed one that needed perfecting. Philip immediately turns his attention to how much would it cost. He was thinking to himself, even if we could find a market nearby, 
we couldn't have begun to afford to buy that much food. Scholars estimate there were probably between 15 and 20,000 people, maybe even more there. As I said, Matthew makes it clear that there was 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So when you account for women and children, there were thousands of people there. And that's how Philip and the other disciples calculated the cost. They estimated the number of people. They knew what bread and stuff would cost, and they multiplied that out, and they came up with the figure of 200 denarii. Do you know how much 200 denarii was to them? In Matthew 20, there's a parable about a master hiring laborers to work in the field and he offered to pay them one denarii a day. So you could see then that if that was the common wage of a a common laborer, it would take eight months of that to accomplish this 200 denarii to buy the bread. So I wanted to put that in today's terms. Let's say a common laborer today gets $100 to $150 a day Multiply that by 200, and that would be between 20000 and $30,000 to buy enough bread to feed all these people. Sounds like a lot of money, but when you think about a football stadium of people and trying to feed them a meal, that actually puts it into a really simple perspective. And it's, according to Philip, it wouldn't be, be a good meal. It would just be enough to barely feed them. But Philip's response reveals the impossibility of the situation in his eyes, and it also revealed the weakness in his faith. This is the same man that he has been watching turn water into wine. He's seen him heal scores and scores of people, all kinds of sicknesses and deformities. His faith is not where it needs to be at this point. He is still looking at things through the lens of human frailty and trying to figure it out in the context of his own power. So I stopped when I got to that and I thought to myself, do we, do I do that? Do I look at things and look at dilemmas through completely human eyes sometimes. That's what Philip was doing. He was calculating the money needed, the amount of food needed, where were we going to get it, were the markets closed, you know, were they closed, were they open, how much, that's the kind of things that was going through his mind. He was purely looking at it through physical, me meeting the need kind of way. And I have to ask the question, have we, have you ever done that? I know I have. Sometimes I'm ashamed to admit it. I, I know I've shared with you all this example more than once, but it's just, it fits so well. I know I've shared the road of my son and the drug abuse and the things that he's gone through, but I cannot help of him and his situation when I think of this. We started down this road of rebellion with him at the age of 15, and it lasted almost 15 years. I could share story after story of heartache and problems that this brought about in his life it was a downhill slide that we thought would never end if you've never been through this you can't comprehend the nightmare it is we went to sleep night after night holding hands praying crying wondering if the phone would ring in the middle of the night and it would be a police or the hospital or maybe even a coroner calling and sometimes the phone did ring we kept praying and praying and things kept getting worse and worse it seemed like There was no hope. And I'm not saying that I was without hope, especially outwardly. I put on a good front. I prayed. I told myself and I told others that God could work a miracle, and I believed that. But I'm ashamed to admit that occasionally my faith faltered. I remember thinking that maybe he wasn't one of God's elect and he would never be saved. But, Lord, I prayed, just help him get a job. Help him to get off drugs enough to get a job, to be able to function, to be a member of society. 
I was kind of in some ways just compromising and just saying, just if you're not going to save him, just do this. He couldn't hold a job. He couldn't get a decent job besides being a telemarketer because of his background. He couldn't rent a place to live because of the felony that was on his record. And just how are you going to break out of that cycle when no one will even give you a chance? He resorted to living in run-down hotels with other drug abusers and alcoholics who also couldn't find a place to live. It seemed impossible through human eyes that he would ever lead a normal life. And we tried everything in our own power. Rehab after rehab. We let him move in. We kicked him out. We prayed. But sure, we, we also schemed and plotted everything we could do in our own power to help solve this problem. But in the end, there was nothing we could do. Nothing was helping. In my eyes, sometimes it was impossible. But I'm here to tell you that nothing is impossible when Jesus Christ is involved. For those of you that haven't heard, he's been sober for three years. He was given the opportunity to work by a Christian man in Oklahoma at a hotel. And he's worked there for several years. He's recently named the general manager of one of the hotels. He is the manager of a Comfort Inn and Suites in Oklahoma City. The way God chose to help him was through a Christian man in an AA group. Wes, when he tells about it, likes to tell you the name of the group. The name of the group is called Lakeside. <laughs> And Wes loves to tell that story because he loves Lakeside. He loves Pastor Steve. He still listens to him regularly um, on, online. He is involved in church. He's involved in Bible studies. He's mentoring other recovering drug addicts in the area. He is a testimony of a modern-day miracle of what God can do when we see things as impossible. So I'm not too hard on Philip and the disciples because I've been there. Philip, as well as the other disciples, were like me. They were weak in faith, not, not no faith, but one that needed strengthening and one that needed to grow. And like me, seeing God work does increase your faith in Him. So one of the disciples finds a boy with five pieces of bread and a couple of fish. As I studied this, I wondered to myself, were there other people there that had food that were holding back? You think about it. 20,000 people there and families and kids, I almost bet you that there was other people that had a little food with them and they were holding back. In fact, liberal theologians think that is the miracle, that Jesus incited the people to break out their bags and their, get their food out and they all shared it. We know that that's heretical teaching because the God of creation can create some food. He doesn't need an explanation of what happened. And there's also too many details given to refute that. I think it's one of the reasons we'll see in the next section that John recounts the exact details of the leftover food. There's about to be a miracle performed that cannot be denied. So let's move on to the miraculous meal in verses 10 through 13. Jesus said, have the, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So we see in these verses, the disciples do not know what to do. They're ready to just send the crowds away, but Jesus takes charge. He doesn't reprimand the disciples for their weak faith. He just puts them to work. He gives them instructions. 
He tells them, have the people sit down. They may have fell short on faith, but they didn't fall short on obedience. They did everything he told them to do. They went to work. In Mark's account, he tells us that they divided the people into groups of 50 to 100, probably to make it easier to distribute the food. So get this picture in your mind. A couple hundred of large groups of people, John tells us, there was plenty of grass. And if you've been to Israel, you know that many times there's not a lot of grass, but it also confirms the fact that it was around the Passover, which would have been the spring before the dry season had come in. So there was a lot of grassy areas there. They were all sitting down in large groups, divided into groups of a hundred, spread out over a large grassy area. And Jesus begins performing the miracle. It says that he broke the bread and the fish and distributed it to the disciples who distributed it to the crowds. And if you think about this, I never really dwelt on what happened. Think about, again, thousands of people spread out over a large area, sitting around on grassy areas in groups of a hundred, and the twelve men kept going back to Jesus, getting more bread. He would break it and create more, and they would go deliver it, come back, get more, deliver it. This went on and on and on. It wasn't a quick miracle. It took some time for this to develop and for all the people to get fed. So it was a very magnificent miracle that was taking place. And then it says they gathered up the leftovers. Jesus may have been able to create abundant amounts of food, but he still didn't waste it. It said so that none would be left. He gathered it all up, 12 baskets full. I've heard a lot of different people as I was studying, read a lot of different things about people trying to symbolize the 12 baskets into 12 tribes and they would always be provided for. That would just be subjection. But I don't think we can really do that. There were 12 disciples. Therefore, I think there was 12 baskets. They filled them back up. And if you even think about it, a basket for each man out of 20,000 people is really not as much leftovers as you would think. But I think it's important to confirm the miracle, to confirm that God supplied everything they needed and some. And I think that really hit home, probably not for the crowd, but for the disciples who were the ones picking it back up. They witnessed the miracle directly. They picked up the leftovers. I think this miracle, although it benefited the crowd, it really was meant for the disciples. Part of me wondered if the crowd even knew what was happening. Think about thousands of people there, and they all sat down, and they just kept bringing them food. Part of me wonders, well, they didn't really see Jesus create the bread. As I thought about that more, I know they did know what was happening because we know we're going to know within a minute from their reaction. But you think about how news travels. You don't have to have Facebook to hear what's going to happen. I live in a mobile home park and sometimes something happens at the board meeting and I know about it before the people all get out of the meeting. It's just it's amazing how word travels. And I think the word spread rather quickly what was happening. We also know by their reaction that we're going to read about that they knew what was going to happen. So let's look at the reaction, and I entitled it The Wrong Reaction, verses 14 and 15 of chapter 6. It says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The reaction that this miracle aroused in them was a great enthusiasm. We are told that they believed he was the Messiah, but they drew some false conclusions about what his mission as the Messiah was. What were they looking for in a Messiah? A king, a deliverer, 
a physical leader who would be their king here on earth, one that would deliver them from Rome, the oppression they were under. He would be the perfect king. He would usher in a time of peace and justice. He would solve all their problems. Sometimes, though, I think we give them too hard of a time for that. They really weren't that far off in their thinking. The Scripture actually teaches this is true. It's just that they, they took the second coming instead of the first coming. They were missing that fact that there were two comings. It was the second coming that they were focused on when he would come as a lion, the ruler of Judah. Why do you suppose they missed this? Both comings are in Scripture. Why did they migrate to the second coming? I think it's because that's what they wanted to see. That was their desire. They wanted the earthly kingdom. They saw how this would benefit them. It would meet their needs. They were in love with the product, not the person. The gifts, not the giver. So how do we apply that to us today? Do people today, or even ourselves, sometimes have a great enthusiasm for a Jesus that's not the real biblical Jesus? Do people today sometimes grab a hold of a partial truth about God or Jesus and run with it, but not accept the total truth? Some people grab on to a Jesus that's all love. One that wouldn't condemn or judge anybody. Some see a Jesus that wants everybody to be wealthy and prosperous and healthy. A Jesus that will answer every prayer the way they want. A genie in a bottle that they can rub and the answer will come. I think of people whose Jesus is the leader of social justice. Or one whose Jesus wants everyone to have self-esteem and moral goodness. And even within our own evangelical circles where we have good doctrine, sometimes even we ourselves see Jesus for what he can do for us. You can tell that that's true sometimes by the prayer life of people. Sometimes our prayer life focuses almost exclusively on petitioning and answering God to answer our prayers the way we want them answered. Why did they want him to be their king? Do you think it was all just about Rome and being the king in the sense of conquering? I think it was partially that, but it was also about having their stomachs filled. It was about having their people, their friends and family healed. This king would meet their needs, their physical needs. And we know that's not what Jesus was centered on at this point in his ministry. So you ask the question, what is at the root of their desire for Jesus, the miracle worker, to be their king? And the answer is selfishness, me. They were not asking the question, what does God want from us? They were expressing what they wanted from God. And I thought about the many so-called preachers that have capitalized on this earthly-minded, fleshly, self-centered attitude. This desire to follow the Jesus who can satisfy our desires is at the root of ministries like Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland and many others. They propagate a false healing ministry in order to attract gullible, desperate people who are searching for relief. You have men with huge congregation. Thousands of members flock every week to hear men like Joel Osteen and Creflo Dollar teach a false gospel centered around prosperity and health for all who would just get rid of all negative thoughts and just grab a hold of God's promises. These men and women know human nature. And they know by preaching to their desires they will get a great following. And that's just a few men who are on TV. 
There are many right here in our city, in all, all the cities around the world. Why? Because that's what people want to hear. They are not coercing them to believe these things. This is what comes natural to men and women without regenerated hearts. And we can see that in our text this morning. That's what many of the crowd following Jesus were doing. They were looking to Jesus to satisfy their desires. That's why they were so excited. That's why they were ready to crown Him their King. Well, people cannot manipulate Jesus into acquiescing to their demands. So what does He do? Verse 15 says, He withdraws from them and goes up into the mountain again. And I think he still does that today in some sense. I think Jesus still withdraws from people that seek him for their own selfish desires. Jesus didn't come to satisfy our desires. He came to what? Change them. He will make that more clear further into chapter 6 because the purpose of this whole miracle is to set up a discussion on Jesus himself being the bread of life. And he's going to say some things later in this discussion that were very hard things to hear. In verse 44, he says to them, No one can come to the Father unless him who sent me draws him. In verse 51, he talks about himself as being the bread of life and says, Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. Talking about his flesh. In verse 53, he gets more pointed and says, Unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you will not have eternal life. These were very hard statements. Verse 66, as I said earlier, says that after this teaching by Jesus that many disciples, not the twelve, but other followers, turned back and no longer walked with him. So what's the message of this miracle of the loaves to us this morning? Many, but one of the primary ones that impacted me was that Jesus wants himself to be the desire of my heart, not what he can do for me. The question is, how do you view Jesus? The Jewish leaders didn't see him for who he was. Many of the Jewish people were confused about Jesus. Nicodemus struggled with what it meant to be born again. The woman at the well had a hard time understanding her need for living water. Philip and the disciples even didn't have the full understanding yet, although they were growing. We need to see Jesus for who he truly is. The one and only begotten of the Father. We need to see him crucified for sinners, raised up, not only to be a giver but the gift itself he himself is the gift if we view jesus this way we'll respond not selfishly but we'll respond in love for what he's done for us and we'll be obedient out of love we'll be thankful we'll praise him for what he's done for us so if there's anyone here this morning who's been following jesus for the wrong reasons i pray you will repent and come to him in humble repentance accepting him for what he is for who he is our savior our redeemer our friend. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, please forgive us when we sometimes focus our attention too much on your physical and earthly gifts to us instead of the eternal gift in your Son. We praise you this morning for who you are and what you've done for us, for sending your Son, the bread of life, to us to die for us. May we partake of Him every moment of every day. May we bask in His presence, feeding on His grace and His mercy, allowing every good gift to remind us of His love and Your love for us. We ask these things, all of these things, in Jesus' name. Amen.